This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insight hour. Equanimity means understanding the difference between reactivity of mind and responsiveness of mind. So this is a really important distinction because these two words reflect very different mind states. Reactivity creates agitation. Responsiveness really is the basis for a balanced and compassionate engagement. Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep knowledge of the path of mindfulness. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Joseph. So today I would like to speak about one quality of mind that plays a critical role in the happiness in our daily lives, but also in the unfolding of our practice uh, for awakening. And from one perspective, we could say that the whole path rests on the maturing of this one quality. And that is the mental factor of equanimity. Now, equanimity is the English translation of the Pali word upeka, and it refers to one of what in the Buddhist uh, psychology is called the universal beautiful qualities. So that itself is a wonderful category, universal beautiful qualities, which means that equanimity and the others arise in every wholesome mind state. So equanimity is always present in the wholesome states of mind. Qualities such as confidence, you know, and mindfulness, and non-greed, and non-hatred, liability of mind. There are many uh, of these universal, beautiful qualities. And what's important to understand about all of them is that these wholesome, beautiful, universal qualities create happiness in our lives. They are the source. They, they what constitutes 
a happiness uh, that we can experience and find in our lives. So equanimity is one of these beautiful universals. And it's mm, described as a neutrality of mind. Bhikkhu Bodhi, the great American translator of the Buddhist texts, he said Upaka could be literally translated into English as there in the middleness. So this is a little bit of an awkward English phrase, but it may conjure up for you um, some aspect of it. There in the middleness. It's the quality in the mind of evenness, of impartiality. And when it's highly developed, it becomes the basis for an unshakable balance of mind. But we need to take a little bit of care because in understanding the experience of equanimity, we need to take care because in English, when we speak of neutrality of mind, it might suggest, at least to some people, a feeling of indifference or apathy or of being disengaged from life. No, the mind is just neutral. But all of these, whether it's indifference or apathy or disengagement, they are what are called the near enemies of equanimity, because they are really unwholesome imitations of it. As we explore how equanimity manifests uh, in our lives, in the many ways that it does, we see that it is not indifference at all, but rather a spacious impartiality. We begin to understand why equanimity is called a beautiful state of mind. And it would be hard to overestimate its importance. So even though it's not spoken of perhaps as much as mind states like wisdom or love or compassion, equanimity has an equally powerful role. Know, in the unfolding of our lives, the unfolding of our path. So the first way we can experience the cool, restful quality of equanimity is in the peace and balance it can bring to our daily lives. <laughs> Things that I think we would all appreciate. Each one of us, as you know, is touched by what the Buddha called the eight great vicissitudes of life. And uh, it's, it's a great phrase, the great vicissitudes, or we might say the great winds of change that blow continually through our lives. These are the endlessly changing conditions that affect us all of gain and loss. Praise and blame, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain. So these are the these are the kinds of changes that are continually arising 
in the course of our lives as they unfold. Now, when equanimity is developed, we ride these inevitable waves with balance and with ease. And without it, without equanimity, in the face of all of these inevitable changes, we are simply tossed about and often crashing into the changing conditions of our lives. And so right there, we can see the potential for equanimity to create a much greater uh, space of easefulness as we navigate our lives in the world. So we can see the play of gain and loss in so many different aspects. Uh, We can feel their effect whenever we're invested in or attached to a particular outcome. Or in any situation, you know, when we're taking something to be I or mine. If we're attached to a particular outcome, I think it's a setup often for frustration or difficulty or unease because we are not ultimately in complete control of how things unfold. Lots of different forces in the world contribute to how things happen. So we can do our part with our aspiration, with our hopes. But if we're attached to the outcome, then if it doesn't happen as we wish, it's going to be the source of uh, difficulty, a challenge, of unhappiness. <laughs> one of my favorite examples of uh, wonderful equanimity expressed in a, a short poem by Ryokan. He was a, I think, uh, 18th century uh, Zen master, uh, hermit, poet uh, in Japan. And there are many stories of him living in the mountains, very poor, uh, had almost no possessions. And he would just go around the mountains playing with the village children, uh, leading a Dharma life. Uh, and the story goes, uh, expressed in this one little haiku, he came back one time to his heart and just the few possessions that he had, maybe it was his cooking pot or his begging bowl, something like that. Just whatever few possessions he had had been stolen. And as the story goes and the haiku expresses, this is what he reputedly said. The moon at the window. The thief left it behind. (laughs) that's quite an amazing response. Imagine coming back to your house one day and all of your prized possessions were stolen. Oh, the moon at the window. (laughs) The thief left it behind. Probably not. (laughs) Unless equanimity has really been cultivated to a very high extent. I love that story because it points to a possibility. You know, we may not all be quite at that level yet, but 
his things had already been stolen. So what would have been the usefulness of his getting upset or ranting and raving about it would not have served any purpose at all. Instead, the moon at the window, the thief left it behind. So we can see another uh, impact of gain and loss, and it's, I think, very current now uh, for many of us. The impact of gain and loss in the intense political dramas that are playing themselves out. You know, if in your, your daily life you follow the political news closely, do you notice all the ups and downs of your mental states as various political dramas unfold? You know, when our views prevail, then we become exhilarated and happy. And when our particular point of views are frustrated, we become depressed or discouraged, gain and loss. So equanimity does not mean that we should disengage. That's not the implication. Because whether it's what to do when our possessions have been stolen and only the moon remains, or we're dealing with a political situation or any other, it doesn't mean that we disengage. Equanimity means understanding the difference between reactivity of mind and responsiveness of mind. So this is a really important distinction because these two words reflect very different mind states. Reactivity creates agitation with us. Responsiveness really is the basis for a balanced and compassionate engagement. And so this difference was just expressed in a, um, just a short Taoist phrase that says, non-action is not inaction. So that's, that's a really uh, concise way of expressing it. Non-action means non-reactivity of mind as we face different circumstances in our lives, different aspects of gain and loss. Can we be non-reactive? But non-action, in this sense, does not mean inaction. It means... We can be with the situation, assess what needs to be done, and then hopefully respond in the most skillful and compassionate way. And in this sense, equanimity offers a great gift to compassionate action because it imbues these compassionate actions, compassionate responses with qualities of calm and steadfastness and patience as it seeks to alleviate different kinds of suffering. And of course, these are the qualities 
you know, the calm, the steadfastness, the patience, which will allow for our actions to actually be more effective and more sustainable. One Zen master uh, called these qualities of constancy and patience the long-enduring mind. You know, and, and it's that quality of steadiness in the face of changing conditions. And this is precisely the quality that equanimity uh, fosters and nurtures within us. <laughs> we can also see gain and loss and how it affects us right here on a meditation retreat. We have a calm, concentrated sitting. The thought may come, oh, now I've got it. My practice is going to be like this from now on. We expect it to stay. We expect the next sitting to be just like uh, this one was. But the next sitting or the next day, maybe our meditation, the mind is restless and the body is uncomfortable and we're bored. Loss. Thoughts come. What did I do wrong? How did I lose it? I must not be a good meditator. Gain and loss. If we're reactive, we're just tossed about by, by these reactions. If we have developed to some extent equanimity, then we realize that these changes are a natural part, whether it's of our meditation practice, you know, and as you know, it goes through a lot of ups and downs. Uh, it's not linear in one direction. It's, it's more like, uh, if you're familiar with uh, the representation of a sine curve, which goes up and down and up and down, but the slope of the curve is going up if we persevere. Gain and loss untempered by equanimity, by balance, by being in the middleness, keeps us in servitude to the inevitably changing conditions of our lives. Okay, so this is the first pair of the vicissitudes, gain and loss. And and so we want to take these inevitable changes uh, as part of our practice, particularly being mindful of how we're relating to them. Are we relating with reactivity? And if so, we should notice that and be mindful of that. Are we relating to them with equanimity, with balance, with impartiality? So we can also notice next pair of vicissitudes, praise and blame. And this can become very clear. You know, notice how you feel when somebody praises you. And then notice how you feel when somebody blames you for something. And especially if it's in front of other people. You know, if it's public in some way. So I had, I had a wonderful practice of working with praise and blame. Uh, <clears throat> after uh, my book One Dharma came out, and 
of course, you know, in the publication of a new book, one is enthusiastic and excited and interested. So I was reading the various reviews on Amazon, which was probably a big mistake. <laughs> but it was a perfect uh, experience of praise and blame. So here are a few of these were a few of the of the Amazon reviews. Concise, enlightening, takes one to the core of Buddhism. Another, a practical, enlightening book that's a pleasure to read. Praise. And then, one Dharma is not emerging in this book. Not as significant a book as the title might suggest. And one of my favorite blame <laughs> uh, comments, this is pretty silly stuff. <laughs> so from enlightening to silly in one move of the cursor. So when I first had the reviews, you know, when the book first came out, I read the first, the first postings and I could feel my mind glowing, you know, when the comments were praising and I could feel the glow dimming when I came to the blame ones. Fortunately, uh, Dharma practice came to the rescue. Remembering the universal nature of this, everybody goes through this. Even the Buddha was the recipient of praise and blame. So I then just began to see the humor in the whole situation. And as a side comment, a sense of humor is so helpful on a spiritual path where we learn to hold things a little more lightly and don't take our minds quite so seriously. And so when I could have a bit of a sense of humor and come back remembering the universality of praise and blame, uh, my mind relaxed, my heart relaxed, and I could rest much more easily just in equilibrium and taking in both. So the Buddha expressed this unwavering capacity of equanimity in one of the verses of the Dhammapada. And he said, as a solid mass of rock is not moved by the wind, just, you know, see if you can visualize this. As a solid mass of rock is not moved by the wind, so a sage, wise person, is not moved by praise and blame. So the practice of equanimity is not just to be done on our cushion or, you know, in our formal meditation. It really is a practice a daily practice in our lives because it greatly enhances the quality of our lives in the world. It's really a source of tremendous ease and balance. It is important to remember that equanimity is a practice. And until we're fully enlightened, it certainly is not going to be perfect. But even when we find ourselves in the middle of reactivity, you know, we're caught up, um, you know, in wanting or not wanting or trying to avoid or trying to hold on and we're being reactive in some way, 
if we can remember and remind ourselves of the possibility and the value of equanimity, then it gives us the opportunity to gradually guide ourselves back to it. And I'll be talking a little bit more later about some ways to both cultivate equanimity and to bring ourselves back to it when we've forgotten. <clears throat> so gain and loss, praise and blame. The third pair of the vicissitudes, uh, in some ways, just a more generalized form of praise and blame, and that is fame and disrepute. Now, the great lesson here, and this is one that uh, has been so helpful for me over many, many years. The great lesson here is that even though we may hanker after pain, fame, or shrink, or shrivel in the face of disrepute, they really only exist in other people's minds. If we are established, well established, in the non-remorse of good sila, of ethical action, of non-harming, then that is the foundation for us to remain un unmoved in the experience of fame or disrepute. We remain equanimous in the face of these external projections. So years ago, this goes back to the early years of my practice uh, with my first teacher, Mnindraji. He said something which has just saved me so much dukkha in my life. And it's in regard to this, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. He said, you can't take responsibility for other people's minds. You can take responsibility for your own. That was so freeing because it made me realize that we don't have control over what other people are thinking or feeling. That's going to depend on their own experience, their own conditioning. We can't take responsibility for that. They have to take responsibility for their own minds. And likewise, in acknowledging that we can't take responsibility for other people's minds, we realize we do have to take responsibility for our own. And that's why to remain economist in the face of praise and blame and fame, fame and disrepute, the importance of having confidence in the wholesomeness of our own mind states, you know, and our own commitment to sila and to non-harming, because that is the condition for non-remorse in our lives. So the last of the vicissitudes, just part of the winds of change that blow through our lives, and this is powerful, that affects us all, is the alteration of pleasure and pain, or happiness and sorrow, of pleasant and unpleasant. 
for most of us, there is a deep, <clears throat> we might almost say, almost hardwired conditioning in the mind to want and to hold on to what's pleasant and to avoid what's unpleasant. And of course, this seems so natural. I mean, if we went up to anybody, do you want what's pleasant? Of course. You want to avoid what's unpleasant? Of course. It seems so natural. It seems just like the natural way to live. And because of that, and because this is how it's commonly understood, we rarely investigate this condition, you know, or explore other possibilities. There's a Burmese teacher, a wonderful teacher, Saida Dejaniya, who has been teaching in recent years in the West and has a wonderful approach to practice and a wonderful way of communicating uh, the Dharma. So this is, this is one of the things he said. You only want good experiences. You don't want even the tiniest unpleasantness. Is this fair? Is this the way of the Dhamma? <laughs> I think he's just calling it out. That this alternation of pleasure and, and pain, pleasantness or unpleasantness, this is simply the nature of life. There's no one who experiences only pleasantness. And I think there's no one who experiences only unpleasantness. But because of our deep-seated conditioning to want to hold on to the pleasant and to want to avoid the unpleasant, it's precisely this reactivity that powers the roller coaster of hope and fear in our lives. And so we're just living with this kind of agitating energy of always hoping for what's pleasant and fearing what's unpleasant. But with increasing clarity and increasing wisdom, we begin to understand and to see, to see deeply that these changes are inevitable. That they're not a mistake. It's not that pleasant feelings go away because we've done something wrong. It's simply the nature of all conditioned things to change. And there's a phrase in the text which is another way of talking about change, but for me it's, it's a little unusual English phrase, and because of that, uh, I find it makes the truth of it very vivid. And the phrase that, that is found often in the text, talking about change, that things are always becoming otherwise. Becoming otherwise. Pain becomes pleasure. Pleasure becomes pain. This cycle continually goes on. Everything is becoming otherwise all the time. The Buddha offered a reflection on this in a more macro way, not so much a moment-to-moment way. And he gave such importance to this reflection, he suggested that we actually reflect on this daily. And it's really simple, but it's, it also uh, 
uncover some deep conditioning within ourselves. And I, I saw that very much in myself. So the reflection has to do with reminding ourselves that what has the nature to grow old will grow old. What has the nature to become ill will become ill. And what has the nature to die will die. And here's the main point. And I am not exempt. So I love that tagline. And I am not exempt. Because even though we know the truth, that what has the nature to grow old, ill, and die will do so, it's, it's in the very nature of those experiences. Even knowing that and teaching it for the last 50 years, I can feel deep within myself some subterranean, subterranean feeling as some of these aspects manifest. Oh, but I should be exempt. <laughs> or thinking that I am exempt and what just happened. <laughs> you know, I could, I could be going for a walk and all of a sudden, I don't know, maybe my knee starts to hurt, <laughs> you know. And I can see often my very first reaction, my immediate reaction. Oh, what just happened? Why did it happen? And then, at this point, very quickly, oh, I'm not exempt. Things are always becoming otherwise. And just that is enough to bring my mind back from this upset reactivity to a place of equanimity. So there are ways you know, and this reflection is one of them, to really uh, develop this strength within ourselves because it's reminding ourselves of what is true. Again, from the Buddha, praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and sorrow, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute, come and go like the wind. To be happy, stand like a great tree in the midst of them all. You know, and it's a beautiful image. I mean, if you just think of, you know, a great tree uh, swept by the winds, the wind comes and goes, but a great strong tree can just stay steady in the face of that. So the first type of equanimity is this evenness and composure in the midst of life's changes. There's another whole arena in which we can practice equanimity. And that's as the four of the Brahmadiharas. You know, those mind states called the four immeasurables or the four divine abodes. You know, metta, loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. Now, equanimity has a special role in the Brahma-viharas. And we could say the gift of equanimity to the others is allows us to express these other beautiful feelings of love, compassion, and joy impartially to all beings equally. To include all beings without prejudice, without bias, without preference. 
equanimity keeps us unmoved in the face of praise and blame. And so we can have metta, we can have compassion and joy, even for those who blame us when equanimity is strong. And this was expressed beautifully in a short haiku by the poet Isa, expressing how equanimity enhances you know, or, or makes possible the fullness of the other Brahma Viharas. Uh, the haiku reads, in the cherry blossom's shade, there's no such thing as a stranger. That's, that's a beautiful expression. And we can see this, this quality at work sometimes if we're familiar in some way with people, great teachers like Bikama or the Dalai Lama, and just watch how they relate to people. It's as if they are living in that place in the middle, middleness, allowing them to connect with all beings equally. So reminiscent of Lisa's poem, in the Cherry Blossom Shade, the Dalai Lama once said, and, and this itself would be a beautiful practice. He said, I try to treat everyone I meet as an old friend. So just think what that would be like if we could practice going through life, treating everyone we meet, those we know, those we know well, those we may hardly know, those we may just meet in passing. What would it be like if inwardly treat everyone we meet as an old friend? What a, what a warm and engaging way, what a responsive way uh, to live one's life. And, you know, when we meet people or see people, not only like the Dalai Lama and Divama, sometimes it's very ordinary people in our lives who just have this quality, you know, of openness and impartiality and equanimity, which allows the other Brahmaviharas to manifest. So there's the equanimity as balance in the vicissitudes of life. This equanimity as expressed as a Brahma-vihara, is impartiality, embracing all. The third manifestation of equanimity takes us deep into the experience of meditative awareness. And this is really the equanimity, the wisdom aspect of equanimity. And there's a teaching from the third Zen ancestor in, in quite a well-known teaching. It's called on the faith mind. And the first opening lines, uh, it's been translated in many ways, but I think this one will be familiar to many of you, where he says, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When attachment and aversion are both absent, everything is clear and undisguised. The great way, you said the great way of liberation, of awakening, is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When attachment and aversion are both absent, everything is clear and undisguised. 
So this is really the quality of equanimity, of non-preferential awareness. And this quality of equanimity in our wisdom practice supports all of the other factors of enlightenment. You know, investigation and energy and rapture and calm, concentration. Equanimity is the foundation of them all. And when that's there, when it becomes strong, we begin a deeper and deeper exploration of what the Buddha called three characteristics of all existence. And so most of you are probably familiar with these three characteristics. The first of them is the truth of change or impermanence. And we begin to know through our practice not that things change simply on a conceptual level, but we begin to experience it really in a very direct way, seeing the continual arising and passing of different phenomena. And sometimes it's on the macro level, you know, the big changes that are going on in the world and our lives. And sometimes in our meditation, it's on the micro level, where we're really seeing just the momentary arising and passing. And at this point in our practice, we become less concerned with what it is that's arising and more tuned in, more tuned to the process of change. So in a way, we're going from content to process. And there are many stories in the text of people getting enlightened by hearing just this one phrase, which I'm about to say. So this could be your chance. It's very simple, but really take it in. Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. So this is the universal truth of impermanence. But can you intuit the implications of that teaching? Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. Therefore, attachment is simply going to be the cause of suffering in our lives. So what would it be like if we really take that in and apply that teaching in our lives and remember it in our lives? So we also experience the truth of dukkha, that is the unreliable, the ultimately unsatisfying and sometimes painful aspects of conditioned phenomena. And again, all of this is made possible through the power of mindfulness and equanimity so that we're seeing things clearly and undisguised. So one of of the uh, definitions that I recently came across of Dukkha, which I really love and I feel like it just expresses the broadest meaning of that Pali term, Dukkha. It was described as the inevitability unwanted experiences. (laughs) So, 
<laughs> I want a concise way of describing this aspect of conditioned existence, right? The change in impermanence, uh, you know, we can really understand clearly, but we may sometimes be trying to avoid experience of the truth, the universal of dukkha. But this short phrase really encapsulates it. The inevitability of unwanted experiences. So given that, given the truth of this, and this comes in our lives, you know, where things happen to us that we don't want, or things that we do want go away. This process is just going on all the time. Without equanimity, it results in a lot of suffering. With equanimity, we understand it with wisdom. And we say, yes, this is just part. Part of life, part of, part of being alive. And so we can learn to relate to it with much greater ease and much less suffering. And then we experience the truth of selflessness because we're seeing that nothing lasts long enough to be called self. It's just all our experience is just all a passing show. And as our experience deepens, we even see that consciousness itself, the knowing faculty itself, is continuously dissolving along with every object that's being known. So even that, which is sometimes the last holdout of the sense of I, of self, well, I'm the one knowing it. But when the equanimity is strong, Satan profound, then even consciousness itself is seen as arising and passing and not to be held on to. So there's no place left for the self to take a stand. As each of these insights into impermanence, unreliability, selflessness, mature, we also pass through various stages uh, of meditative experiences. And these stages themselves uh, are a field for developing equanimity because some of them uh, we're filled with exhilarating rapture when we see for the very first time in our practice experience for the first time the very rapid arising and passing away phenomenon. So it's happening so quickly, and the mind can become so exhilarated, and the mind can become radiant at that point. So that, that's a very blissful state. And then at other times, we go through periods of really profound distress in our meditation. And it's not a mistake. It's part of the natural unfolding of the path. Um, because we see that nothing at all in our experience, provides a true and lasting happiness because everything is continually disappearing and dissolving. How many beautiful and wonderful experiences have you had in your lives? Probably countless, you know, many moments of happiness and pleasure and well-being. 
And yet, where are they now? And it's not that they were not to be experienced and enjoyed in the moment, but it is to always remember that they're not the source of lasting happiness precisely because they don't last. And so the Buddha was pointing to something, a kind of happiness beyond that. If we persevere through all of these different experiences in our meditation, and as the path unfolds, we then come to a maturing of these insights into impermanence and dukkha and selflessness in a stage of practice called equanimity about all formations. And this is a very mature place of development. It's said, it's said to resemble the mind of an arhat. This, this is the kind of mindset that an arhat, a fully enlightened being, abides. Well, of course, we're not yet arhats, and so uh, we may experience this stage for some time, but it also is not permanent. But it provides the field the, the very balanced foundation then for moments of true awakening, the experience of Nibbana, the highest peace, to emerge. But I just want to read a description from one of the Thai masters uh, describing this place of equanimity, equanimity about formations. He wrote, at some point, the mind becomes so clear and balanced that whatever arises is seen and left untouched with no interference. One ceases to focus on any particular content, and all is seen as simply mind and matter, an empty process arising and passing away of its own. A perfect balance of mind with no reactions. There is no longer any doing. Okay, so I hope you've gotten some sense of the value and power and quality of uh, this enormously beneficial uh, mind state of equanimity. So the question then is, how do we develop it? How do we strengthen this incredibly beneficial quality in all of its various manifestations, both in the midst of worldly activities, but also in our meditation practice. So I'll just go through a few uh, suggestions and touch on them briefly. So the great Thai master, Ajahn Chah, had one example which uh, we can just bring into our lives in so many different circumstances. Uh, one time he was talking to a group of uh, disciples, nuns and monks, and any lay people that were practicing with him at the time. And he held up a cup. Like <laughs> that. He held up a cup, and he asked, how should you relate to the cup? In a wise way. And then he answered. He said, you should relate to the cup as if it's already broken. 
<laughs> it so clearly uh, captures both the importance of taking care of the cup in whatever way is appropriate, but also not being attached to it because at one point or another it will be already broken. It is going to change. So can we relate to all the aspects of our experience in this way? And again, we can bring in both a profound seriousness about it and also a sense of humor about it. You know, I think that combination can serve us well. Uh Can we treat all experiences as already broken or already gone? Because it will be gone. And so then we can engage in as full a way as possible, you know, in as loving and compassionate a way as possible. Enjoying the moment, but without attachment. Because we're relating to it as if it's already gone. The cup is already broken. The Buddha gave one other very practical piece of advice about establishing equanimity. He said it's strengthened by associating with wise and equanimous people. <laughs> and in a way, it's such common sense. You know, if we habitually are associating with people who are very uh, angry or agitated, uh, you know, or greedy, you know, or reactive, and this is the environment that we're living in, it makes it more difficult for us to cultivate the equanimity within ourselves. You know, we become influenced by the people around us. If we are associating with wise people, you know, economists, non-reactive, then it's catchy, you know, and we, we begin to settle into that quality of being in ourselves and it actually becomes stronger. You know, and and then that becomes a gift that we can offer to others. So we can also develop equanimity as one of the Brahmavi hearts. So there is a meditative technique, just as there is with metta or compassion or mudita, empathetic joy. There's a practice, a meditation practice that we do. And it basically goes through the same sequence of working with different people, you know, different categories of people. But the phrase that we use in equanimity, it's very interesting because the phrase itself is imbued with wisdom. And I think this is what gives equanimity a particular power. Because along with the balance of mind, there is the understanding of the wisdom that gives rise to it. And this comes across a lot in the equanimity conversation. So the phrase is, and I'll use generally people, but we could do it for ourselves, we could do it for particular people, but I'll use the collective noun. People's happiness or unhappiness depends on their actions, not upon my wishes. 
just that. It's the realization that we can have the most loving wishes for people's happiness. And their well-being. But ultimately, their happiness and well-being depends on their own actions of body, speech, and mind, and mind in particular. We can wish, may you be happy. But if people are continuing to cultivate qualities of greed and anger and covetousness and jealousy and envy, we can wish for them to be happy, but their happiness does not depend on our wishes. It depends on what they're cultivating within themselves. And so this phrase of equanimity, this phrase kind of brings about a quality of equanimity so that even as we are cultivating compassion with a genuine wish for their happiness, we can remain equanimous in whatever their situation is, knowing that ultimately their happiness depends upon their own actions. So here again, I want to emphasize that this feeling of equanimity does not imply that we withdraw or we stay disengaged or try to do what we can and what would be helpful to do it we try to help them cultivate wholesome actions, you know, body, speech, and mind, knowing that that's going to be the cause of happiness. So we engage in that way, you know, really with a heart of love and compassion, but at the same time, understanding that ultimately people's happiness or unhappiness depends upon their actions, not upon my wishes. So I have found in doing the Brahma Vihara practice at different times over the years, you know, for extended periods of time, and each one had its own particular flavor and benefit. It was very interesting when I began to do the equanimity meditation and to feel that quality of evenness, of stability, of impartiality of openness and connectedness, but non-reactivity non in my heart or mind. It was just being open, understanding the truth of how things unfold. Okay, so just... Uh, One very simple way of strengthening equanimity. And this is coming back to our meditation practice, our mindfulness practice. Uh, this, this is so simple, it almost feels like cheating, <laughs> but it works. Uh, so suppose you're sitting and practicing mindfulness, and this is particularly a function of the tool of mental noting. And particularly noting when things are either particularly pleasant or unpleasant. Notice 
the tone of voice of the note. So you're sitting and maybe you begin to feel something. Pain, 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 pain. <laughs> you know, and the note, you can feel the A version in the tone. Or maybe something pleasant. Oh, pleasant, pleasant, pleasant. And you can feel the enjoyment of it, uh, the seduction of it in the tone of voice. So first, the noting is very helpful in this regard because it's highlighting these uh, react- reactions in the mind that maybe we wouldn't have even noticed. So the tone of voice will show us, you know, what our state of mind is. And then this is the trick. Simply by changing the tone of voice of the note, it changes our mind state. So if there's some pain, you see the noting is filled with some kind of judgment or aversion. Pain, pain, pain. And then, oh, yeah, soften. Pain, pain, discomfort. Immediately, as you change the tone of the note, you can feel the mind state relaxing into equanimity, into openness. So I would suggest you really experiment with this because it is so simple. Okay, one less. We're coming to the end, and there's there's always more to say, but I, I want to end with one one less story, an equanimity story, and it has to do with using a mindfulness of the mind, mindfulness of awareness, as being a way of cultivating equanimity. And I just had such an interesting experience of this that it stayed with me, and it has become part of my practice. This goes back quite a few years, um, and I was living here in Barry in Massachusetts. In the wintertime, it's really cold. And one year during the winter months, some friends and I went down to the Caribbean for a week vacation. Went down uh, to a Caribbean island, and it was beautiful. It was like, every, at every sense door, it was pleasant. You know, pleasant sight, sound, and the warm air, and ocean. And, and I would be going around saying, pleasant, pleasant, pleasant. Uh, that was very delightful. The week was over. <laughs> Things becoming otherwise. Back to Barry, Massachusetts. And it was in the middle of a particularly cold spell. And it was like, 20 degrees below Fahrenheit, freezing cold, icy wind. It was so cold it was burning. And I wasn't outside much, but when I did go out, the cold was so intense that it became interesting to me. And so uh, I started just opening as best I could to the intensity of the unpleasantness. The cold, the burning cold. And what I saw in that moment was so interesting to me, which was that the awareness, the quality of awareness itself, did not care whether it was cold and unpleasant or warm and pleasant. 
Because the function of awareness is to simply know. It's like a clear mirror reflecting whatever comes in front of it, and it's not choosing to reflect this and not that, or preference. It just reflects. The mind, awareness, just knows. And when I saw that, that was so illuminating. And the possibility, at least at times and for moments, of exploring You know, sometimes maybe in intense experiences or maybe, you know, in more moderate ones, but just to become mindful of the knowing aspect of what's happening. Knowing of a sight or a sound or a sensation or smell, whatever it may be. And to explore in some way that quality of knowing that is not affected by pleasant, by unpleasant, by pain, by pleasure. It simply knows. And that is the expression or the manifestation of this beautiful quality of equanimity. So as it develops, as it gets stronger, there's less reactivity to changing circumstances. We know on deeper and deeper levels that whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. And as the Buddha repeated many times in the Satipatthana Sutta, this discourse on the foundation of mindfulness, and it really sums up, and it's what I'd like to conclude with, it sums up the fruit of our practice and of where our practice is leading and the freedom that's possible through these understandings. So the Buddha said, and again, he repeats it many times uh, in the sutta, said, and one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. It just, I don't know, for me, that just evokes this place of great openness and freedom. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. So let's just sit for a minute or two. Let the words settle. Come back into the body with mindfulness and equanimity. May all beings enjoy the peace of equanimity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. 
Visit BetterHelp.com slash InsightHour today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash InsightHour.